Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. This is a podcast for those of you out there who are trying to do it right, who are trying to better strengthen and serve your communities by learning about law, about uh, Supreme Court cases, Virginia Court of Appeals cases, new statutes, new cases. Uh, what do you need to know to be a law enforcement officer in the Commonwealth of Virginia? Uh, thank you so much for the feedback we got re recently at some of the classes that we put on. Uh, gotten some great feedback from people, and I'm glad that people are getting something out of the podcast. Um, it's our goal here to constantly provide you with you know, something useful, something that you can actually use out there in the world. And today, we're definitely going to focus on something that is coming up that's really important, that's useful, and is going to affect every law enforcement officer in Virginia, uh, no matter whether you're a patrol officer, detective, or whatever. It's coming down, and we think it's going to take effect on March 1st. You'll see in a moment. We're really not sure about exactly what date this is going to take effect, but uh, it's a big change to how we do things. You may remember from a podcast that we did earlier in the year on new laws from the special session that took place in the in the fall uh, that there was, uh, and this was episodes 32, this is actually episode 32 of the podcast, we talked about the new rule about search warrants, that Delegate Aird and Senator Locke had both proposed and uh, the, the General Assembly had passed significant new requirements and restrictions on issuing and executing search warrants in the Commonwealth. And these recovered every kind of search warrant there was, phone search warrants, uh, search warrants for records and documents and so on. It required that you could only obtain one of these warrants and, and, and execute it. You could only execute it during the daytime. It didn't define what daytime was, uh, but it created a big problem. If you have a phone search warrant, for example, you couldn't execute it at night without a judge's authorization. And it also banned no-knock search warrants in all cases. Uh, this was it created quite a stir uh, because this new statute carried with it a very significant penalty for violation. That is, uh, the statute provided that if law enforcement obtained a search warrant or executed a search warrant in violation of these terms, no evidence from that would be admissible. Even if it was like the victim's cell phone, even if it was the victim's uh, hospital records or financial records or... Uh, or, or internet records that were obtained by law enforcement and uh, in violation of this code section, uh, that's a pretty big, it was a pretty big uh, sanction. So uh, with that in mind, law enforcement, you know, shared their concerns with members of the General Assembly and especially with Dana Schrad from the Chiefs of Police Association and John Jones from the Chiefs of Police Association um, and also the town of Herndon police chief uh, worked very closely with <clears throat> uh, Dana Schrad to craft a piece of legislation that would clear up some of the confusion and, uh, and, and clear up some of the almost really insurmountable challenges that this legislation had posed. And what came out of it is a bill from Senator Stewart, which is Senate Bill 1475, that's making its way through the General Assembly right now. Now, the bill from the fall will take effect on March 1st. So if nothing happens, that bill will take effect on March the 1st, which is just in a matter of days from now. But Senator Stan uh, Stewart's bill has what's called an emergency clause. And what that means is it takes effect as soon as the governor signs it. Now, if the governor doesn't sign this bill until after March 1st, then it doesn't take effect until after March 1st, which means that the bill from the fall will take effect on March 1st. But if the governor signs it this week, before March 1st, then this bill that we're going to talk about today takes effect immediately. 
So it's important that we kind of keep up to date about this. And I'll try to put out an updated podcast maybe as soon as I know the governor is signing it or something uh, so that people can be aware that it's um, that it's been signed. It is likely to become law. Uh, at this point, this week has made it pretty clear that this change is likely to become law. It passed the House 99 to 0 on February 17th. It passed the Senate 38 to 0 on February uh, so on February 17th, it passed the House. On February 19th, it passed the Senate 38 to 0. And that's, you know, originally Senator Spruill was the only person who had opposed it when it first went before the Senate. When it went back to the Senate in a slightly amended form, uh, he, he didn't, he dropped his opposition. So it goes to the governor with no opposition. That means it's very likely the governor will sign it. Obviously, the governor could choose not to sign it. The majority that passed it is veto proof but um so i can't guarantee that it's going to be signed but more importantly we can't guarantee when it's going to be signed so i'm going to treat this as if it is law but keeping in mind that you know it's not law yet and we don't know for sure it's gonna become law but i think you know we don't have a lot of time left uh we're getting very close to march the first and we need to be prepared for something so I'm going to talk about this as if it's going to be the law today, even though keeping in mind, it, you know, there's a possibility that it wouldn't be. All right. So what does this all say? What is the important? What are the important features of this? Like I said, the bill that passed in the fall from the special session would have applied to all search warrants, whether for homes or businesses or medical providers or internet, telecom providers, phones, digital devices. Senator Stewart's fix. Uh, 1475, Senate Bill 1475, focuses almost all the changes on search warrants for homes. There are some requirements that focus on other uh, search warrants as well, and we'll talk about that when that applies. But for the most part, these provisions I'm going to talk about today focus on search warrants for residences, for, for where somebody lives, for their dwelling, or as Senator Stewart calls it, uh, their place of abode. That's what the code says now. A search warrant for the place of abode is where these requirements apply. But before we get to that, there is an absolute ban on the seeking execution or participation in the execution of a no-knock search warrant. It just can't happen anymore. A judge can't authorize it. Even if you were to go to a federal court and get a federal judge to get a no-knock search warrant, a Virginia officer could not participate in it. And participation in or executing or even getting a no-knock search warrant results in all of the evidence being suppressed, even, again, if it's not the defendant's property. So that applies to all search warrants. Now, further, Senator Stewart provides that a search warrant for a place of abode requires that a law enforcement officer be recognizable and identifiable as a uniformed law enforcement officer. So it says a law enforcement officer be recognizable and identifiable. Not that everybody on the, on the team has to be, but I would say if somebody's answering the door, they should be able to see clearly that there's uniformed law enforcement there. So it might be more than one. Uh, depending on you know the circumstance of the search warrant, but you have to at least have one, and you have to provide audible notice of authority and purpose that's reasonably designed to be heard by the occupants of the place to be searched. So you've got to give notice so that everybody can hear that you are law enforcement before you go in there. Now, after entering and securing the place to be searched and prior to undertaking any search or seizure, and again, I have a place of abode. The executing law enforcement officer shall give a copy of the search warrant and affidavit to the person to the person to be searched or the owner of the place to be searched, or if the owner is not present to any occupant of the place to be searched. Actually, this is true whether it's an abode or a business or whatever, but of course you would do this anyway. If you were going to like a hospital records department, obviously you'd go in and you would enter and then you would give the person a copy of the search warrant and affidavit before you actually go about doing the search. So that's something you would do anyway. 
But notice here, you have to give a copy of the search warrant and the affidavit. Now that's new. That's actually an addition from what the law was supposed to be starting March 1st, adding that you have to give a copy of the search warrant and the affidavit. And of course, a lot of people have asked, what happens if it's sealed? You're going to have to figure that with your commonwealth attorney and with your court because the sealing provisions and this code section appear to be in conflict. And how your judges untangle that conflict is something you're going to have to work out with your prosecutors. Because it's not clear whether when the search warrant affidavit is sealed, that sealing order wins or the code section here wins, requiring that you turn that affidavit over. And you have to give it to either the owner of the property or if the owner isn't present. And again, you think about a rental place, right? Four or five people renting a house, they're living in there. It, it seems like all of them might have to get a copy of the search warrant affidavit. It says give it to any occupant of the place to be searched. So any could be one or any could be all, depending on how your court reads it. And again, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't uh, comply with this code section, all of your evidence gets suppressed. Again, even if it's the victim's house, even if it's a witness's house. Uh, so you better be sure that the court's going to support you. Uh, if it were me, I would bring a, lots of copies and I would make sure that every occupant, uh, if the owner's not present, that every occupant gets a copy. Like I said, the fall, the, the code section from the fall talked about daytime or versus nighttime. Senator Stewart defines this. He, he actually includes a definition and he says that you can only execute a search warrant at a place of abode between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. Those are the limitations. You, you can only execute a search warrant if it's for a place of abode, not just to say a dwelling, between 8 and 5 p.m. Uh, so he eliminates the whole daytime, nighttime confusion. And again, this only applies to places of abode. So you could do a phone search warrant in the night without any special permission. But sometimes you have to do a search warrant at night, right? I mean, there's different reasons why you might have to. Maybe the, the place is only, the evidence is only available at night or the suspect is only there at night or whatever. So you may have to do the search warrant at night. So how would you do that? Well, the only way, under there's like only a couple of ways under Senator Stewart's fix that would permit uh, law enforcement to execute a search warrant after 5 p.m. The first is that if a judge authorizes the execution of the search warrant at, an, at another time for good cause shown, and the good cause shown has to be uh, shown by particular facts in an affidavit, it's probably part of the search warrant affidavit, you could get a magistrate to authorize that, execu that execution after 5 p.m., uh, but only if a judge is not available or if you're going to see the magistrate after 5 p.m. already. And the other way to get authorization to, to execute a search warrant after 5 p.m. is if you've already entered and secured that property, right? Maybe it's an emergency with a shooting or something like that. And so you went into that house, you entered and secured, and then you were like, okay, so we've had this shooting in this house where everybody's safe, everybody's secure. Now we need to get a search warrant. Well, you've already entered it. So who cares, right? So at that point, then, yeah, you can go get a search warrant. If you've already entered and secured uh, for some other reason, consent or exigent circumstances. Um, but you have to make reasonable efforts to find a judge first before you uh, obtain a search warrant from a magistrate allowing you to execute that search warrant after 5 p.m. Uh, again, unless it's after 5 p.m. already, in which case, you know, the expectation here is there's probably not going to be a judge. But the, the search warrant has to be, there has to be good cause shown for why you're executing a search warrant after 5 p.m. What's the reason you couldn't wait until the next day, uh, until 8 a.m. the next day? And the good cause, again, might be that there's a violent perpetrator uh, at, at, uh, at large, or people are trying to flee, or the evidence is dissipating, 
and that kind of thing, but you have to document that in an affidavit. Okay, so a couple of things to talk about here. Uh, certainly, you know, there's all kinds of issues here, but I want to make clear that what I think the takeaway that you should have more than anything else here is I'm going to have to document a lot more. I'm going to have to make very clear what I did when I executed a search warrant because the consequences for not documenting what you do are pretty fatal to your case. Uh, again, even if it's just a victim's residence, even if it's an unoccupied residence, even if it's a witness's uh, residence, or, you know, in fact, even if it's just for hospital records, you're going to have to do a little more documentation to make sure that you are, uh, that you're good to go and you don't suffer that really brutal uh, suppression remedy. Uh, they There was an attempt to remove that suppression remedy uh, when it came back before the General Assembly when Senator Stewart's amendment was proposed, and it got shot down very quickly. The General Assembly is very enthusiastic right now about this suppression remedy. Now, you cannot, under this uh, code section, execute any no-knock search warrants anywhere of any kind. Uh, it's, simply, it's simply a blanket prohibition on no-knock search warrants. So that means that you have to knock announce who you are, announce the reason for your being there, and then wait a reasonable period of time. And a reasonable period of time after, after that, if they, if, they do not wait, if they do not answer the door, uh, then it's considered a denial of entry and you can use force. This talks about search warrants. It doesn't talk about arrest warrants. It also doesn't talk about, and it doesn't apply to by its very terms, lots of other types of search warrants that law enforcement obtains. So some search warrants don't even fall into this at all. Uh, you know, common examples are search warrants for real-time location data, right, from Verizon or AT&T. Those are complete, these are in completely different code sections, so they're not affected by this. A GPS search warrant, obviously you don't want to do this in the middle of the daytime, put a GPS in someone's car. Uh, that's a completely different code section, and it's not affected by any of these changes. Uh, and fire inspection warrants, um, health and safety inspection warrants, they have their own provisions about notice and so on, um, so they're not covered by this as well. There's a whole bunch of different kinds of, you know, warrants that fall outside of this building code violations, alcohol violations, animal cruelty, hazardous waste, workplace safety. Those all have their own provisions, and those are all separate warrants. But like I said, this does very much apply to search warrants for abodes, like dwellings, for example. Um, and the word abode basically means someone's home, habitation, place of dwelling, residence, or living place. So it might be a house, an apartment. could be somebody's hotel. It could be a hotel room. Depending on the circumstances, it could be a trailer out in the woods. If you think about it, it's, it's really any place that would be subject to a, of a burglary, right? If, it, if, if you would charge someone for burglary, for breaking into that place, then that place is a dwelling. And if that place is a dwelling, then it's probably an abode also. It's a pretty good guide, really, to figure out if something's going to be a dwelling or not. And it's those places, those abodes, that has this restriction that says you can only execute the search warrant between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m., uh, unless a judge authorizes you. And if you, you have to try to find a judge. And if you can't find a judge, then you can go to a magistrate. But you got to document the good cause you have for uh, why it is that you have to go in after 5 p.m. And you have to document your efforts to find a judge. Um, unless it's after 5, right? If you enter during the daytime, though, you don't, I mean, we're talking about entry here, not the searching. So the entry, it has to take place during the daytime. If you enter at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, then you can stay. You can stay after 5 p.m. and continue. Because again, the focal point here is on entry, that we're worried about entries in the nighttime. And so when we focus on that entry, you heard at the beginning that you have to have somebody 
in uniform, at least one person in uniform. And I would say, you know, enough officers in uniform that it would be clear to anyone when they're looking out the window or looking at the door or opening the door that this is the police, right? And so what a uniform is is going to depend on your agency. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, it's police, sheriff, Virginia State Police. It's the, poli- it's the chief of police. It's the elected sheriff. It's the superintendent of state police who decides what a uniform is along with the governing body. So he'll run something past the governing body and say, this is what our uniform is going to look like. And that uniform, the idea of a uniform is it's uniform. The most people wear it, right? It doesn't have to look any particular way. It just has to make clear that it's a law enforcement officer. And so you might have be wearing a badge or it might be a sewn-on badge, but it's some kind of approved uniform that everyone wears, right? That they customarily, that you customarily wear. And it would have to be according to your policies and regulations. So your policy and regulations probably say what your uniform is. And your agency might have different uniforms depending on what your job is. You might have people who are animal control officers wear this uniform and uh, tactical operations officers wear a different uniform. People who are doing you know, uh, in vehicle inspections or bike officers, they all have different uniforms. But your agency will set the rules for what a uniform is. And then those will define uh, what a uniform is. Just throwing on a vest, wearing a T-shirt and throwing on a vest and wearing 511s, that's not going to be a uniform, right? I mean, unless your agency adopts that as their official uniform, which is unlikely. Uh, That's not a uniform. Wearing plain clothes, right, and just hanging a badge off of your chest, that's not a uniform. Um, Wearing, you know, jeans and a shirt or a tank top or whatever and just having an emblem on, that's not a uniform, right? The, you know what your uniforms are, and they might be different uniforms. You might have several different uniforms depending on your mission, but it's a uniform according to your regulations. So you get to the door, you have somebody who's uniformed, and then they have to give audible notice of their authority and their purpose. So, you know, again, police, search warrant, that's audible notice of who you are, police, and your purpose, search warrant, right? And you do that prior to the execution of the search warrant. You cannot do a no-knock entry. And so a no-knock entry, sorry, a regular entry requires that you knock, identify yourself as the police, indicate the reason for your presence, and then wait a reasonable period of time for the occupants to answer the door. The idea here, the Fourth Amendment doesn't result in suppression. It did for a while, and then it was overruled in Michigan versus Hudson. But the idea here is still... And this is, tr- this is true even after Michigan versus Hudson. The idea is to protect against violence in self-defense by somebody who doesn't understand who's coming through their door, right? And again, think about it for yourself. At 2 o'clock in the morning, you hear this bang, somebody demands entry, you don't know who they are, and they're, you know, smashing your door down. How are you going to respond, right? I mean, you're going to, with violence, right? I mean, that would be normal, right? You have to give opportunity to the individuals to comply with the law and avoid the destruction of property occasioned by a forcible entry, and give people the chance to prepare themselves for the entry by the police. It's not an option for them to acquiesce. So if they don't acquiesce, you can force entry. Uh, but it's not, um, you know, it's not like you can just surprise them and throw a flashbang and run in. And, you know, that's, that is prohibited under this code section. Uh, your announcement has to be reasonably designed to be heard by the occupants of the place. And again, if it's a large building, if it's, you know, a two-story or three-story house with lots of bedrooms, your announcement might have to be really, really loud uh, for somebody upstairs in the upstairs bedroom to, you know, to hear, certainly at 2 o'clock in the morning. Maybe during the daytime it's easier. And again, this is why nighttime searches are disfavored. Um, but the concern here is that it's not just knocking and announcing. Some courts will treat not waiting as a no-knock warrant, not waiting a reasonable period of time. 
So uh, it's a factor in the reasonableness of your use of force, and it's a factor in the, uh, in the uh, admission of the evidence. And of course, how long you wait depends upon the time of day, the size of residence, the location of the officers, and so on. So you, you get there, you've got a uniformed officer, you knock, you announce, you wait a reasonable period of time, then you enter either because they allow you or because they deny you entry. You enter and you secure. So you secure everybody in the, proper, in the, in the residence. And then you give them a copy of the warrant. You give them a copy of the warrant and you give them a copy of the affidavit. If it's the owner, if the owner's present, then one copy goes to the owner of the owner, uh, the, the warrant and the affidavit. But if it's... Uh, if, if there's no owner on scene, then it's to the occupants. And it says, the code section says, to any occupant. And again, it's not clear whether that would mean, to your judges, whether that would mean one occupant or all the occupants. I would be safe and give it to all of them. It's not clear to me that it's required to give it to all of them. Again, what if it's like a five-year-old child? I don't, I mean, this remains to be seen. Your court's going to have to res resolve this. Uh, but again, you enter, you can detain everybody first. It's not like you have to hand out warrants before you detain everybody. You enter and secure the property, right, which might mean going through the whole house and securing it and making sure that everybody is safe and everybody is uh, not armed. And then you deal with this issue of giving out the copies of the warrant and the affidavit, and then you can go about searching. You cannot start searching until you've given out uh, the search warrant and the affidavit. And that's really important. Again, if you if you can't document that, that that's true, then you're going to get all your evidence suppressed. So you got to make sure you document. We did all the handing out of copies first before we started to search and seize things. And you can enter and secure the property, right? You can temporarily seize people uh, until you are executing the warrant, until you're actually you know seizing things, until you're actually searching and seizing things. Again, to prevent flight from uh, flight from prosecution, to minimize risk to officers, to allow for an orderly search to take place, uh, to keep people from messing with, you know, trying to open containers themselves or, you know, running around between different rooms and so on. You do have the authority to detain people. How much force you can use is, is re you know, is reasonable in the circumstances. It's going to depend. Is there, a, you know, a five-year-old child may not necessarily need to be prone out and put in flexicuffs. Um, but, you know, if the child is running around and there's officers with guns who are still searching and trying to secure the place, you might have to figure out what I'm going to do with this child until the place is secured, right? So plan this stuff ahead of time, figure out what you're going to do to make sure that people don't get hurt. And that's obviously very important. Um, and, you know, think about, and, and obviously unforeseen circumstances happen. So you go in there with, you know, however many staff you have, and then you encounter however many people are in there. Some of them might be a threat. Some of them might be dangerous. Some of them might be known gang members or people with violent criminal histories or people who are armed or people who are fighting the police. Some of them might be some, you know, 80 or 85-year-old grandmother who's not a threat, and uh, she may still prevent you from orderly searching, so you're going to have to figure out how to prevent her from doing that. But that doesn't mean putting her in handcuffs and holding her in a room for two or three hours. You're going to, you know, hopefully have other staff who are there who can bring her to a different place and take care of her and keep her comfortable. Um, hopefully you have other staff to do that. And again, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Maybe you're in the mountains and it's, you know, there's four or five of you and that's all there is. And there's not going to be anybody else. And you're going to have to figure out how to deal with that under the circumstances. So you're going to, you know, consider securing people based upon the, you know, the nature of the offense itself. Is it a violent crime? Reasons to believe weapons are present. Uh, criminal records of people who are there. Uh, knowledge of specific threats against law enforcement. How many people are there and so on. We're talking about detention, though, not search. Remember, unless they're named in the search warrant, you don't have authority to search them. 
you have authority to detain them. If you have reasonable suspicion that they're armed, you might also have authority to pat them down. But that, pat down is not a search. So this is going to have to happen if it's an abode during the day. It can't happen after 5 p.m. It has to happen between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. The only way you're going to get into a house starting after 5 p.m. is with good cause shown. And the good cause has to be shown by particularized facts in an affidavit submitted either to the judge or if you're not looking for a judge, you have to explain in your affidavit also the good, you know, the efforts that you made to find a judge and why and, and how those efforts failed and why it is you're going to see a magistrate. So how do you find a judge, uh, especially if you're trying to get a judge after after 5 p.m. Uh, potentially or even after 2 p.m.? A lot of times judges are hard to find after, you know, in the afternoon or at all. You might be in a jurisdiction where the judge only comes once a, once a week uh, or maybe even less than that. And so how do you find the judge then if the judge isn't you know, in your courthouse or even in your jurisdiction or somewhere else? Hopefully, and I think this is going on statewide right now, prosecutors and law enforcement are talking to their judges about what to do. Now, I understand the magistrates are also talking uh, among themselves about what they're going to do. And each jurisdiction is going to have to figure out their own answers based on their own resources. Some jurisdictions, like Fairfax County, have almost 100 judges, I think. Uh, their, their procedures are going to be very different than a place uh, where, again, the judge may only come once a week uh, and, uh, and, and is not based anywhere near, might be hours away from the jurisdiction where the search is taking place. The good cause for searching at night is, again, typically there's some evidence that's going to be removed or hidden or destroyed before the morning search is going to take place uh, to prevent the destruction of evidence. Uh, and those are kind of exigent circumstances that might cause a need to execute a search warrant at night. Um, also, maybe some issue about the safety of the public or officers. There might be some threat uh, that, would, that would be diminished by executing the search warrant uh, at night. Uh, again, that might also increase the risk, so you want to articulate why it is that executing the search warrant at night would be safer. Um, maybe it's just the, the nature of the thing you're looking for. Maybe it's a methamphetamine operation, and you need to get in there as soon as possible because obviously methamphetamine is basically just a bomb that's about to go off. Um, so uh, again, so different issues here. The evidence might be only be available at night, or people are trying to destroy evidence and cover their tracks. So all of those are features that might be reasons why or good cause for executing the search warrant at night. And remember, uh, if I'm whether I'm asking a judge or I'm asking a magistrate, I have to in my affidavit articulate why it is that I'm asking for an asking to execute the search warrant after 5 p.m. What is it that that necessitates this search warrant be uh, executed after 5 p.m. as opposed to just waiting until 8 a.m. the next day for the execution? I could go to a regular magistrate right in the nighttime and get a search warrant that would just normally permit me to only serve it between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. Um, but the question is, why do I have to execute the search warrant right now? And there's plenty of instances where that might be where it might be true. I have to do it right now because somebody just got shot, and the place is full of you know blood and DNA evidence, and all that stuff might dissipate. And whoever shot this person is out on the run right now. And we don't know who it is. And we need to locate them, and so this search will help locate and identify the perpetrator. You know, these are all good reasons, and they're common reasons. Uh, but again, keep in mind in that situation also, uh, I might already have been in there. And if I'm if I entered already to this shooting scene and secured the property already, I don't need any special authorization to execute that search warrant after 5 p.m. because I'm already in there. I've already gotten in and secured that property. But if during the course of that search or that interview, I learned that the suspect might be at a different residence, 
uh, and again, it's nighttime, that's plenty of good reason for me to get a, a search warrant uh, authorized to enter that property at night because that person is armed and dangerous and just shot someone and might be trying to destroy evidence. So I want to get in there as soon as possible. So those are all reasons why I might get authorization to execute a search warrant at night. That is, just, I mean, after 5 p.m. And, and that, again, that, that would be authorization. I have to get in the warrant. So like I said, we think that this is going to be the law. Um, Senate Bill 1475 uh, passed the Senate uh, back on, uh, well, it initially passed the Senate uh, back on February 3rd, uh, passed 38 to 1. Senator Spruill was the only person to vote against this change uh, that was cleaning up the, the bill from the fall. Uh, the bill from the fall obviously was very sweeping and had some real serious unintended, what I think are unintended consequences. So uh, this bill passed the Senate, went to the House. The House made two very small changes for words, and then they passed it 99 to 0. Uh, because they had changed these two very small words, uh, it went back to the Senate again for a revote, and this time the Senate voted in favor of it, 38 to 0. So right now there's no opposition to this, and it goes to the governor's desk. Uh, and like I said, it has this emergency clause in it, which the emergency clause is there because uh, the bill from the special session from the fall goes into effect on March 1st. So if nothing happens on March 1st, this really draconian sweeping law that would have meant that you couldn't I mean, basically, you couldn't do phone and digital device warrants at all without a judge's signature at that point because, you know, you you can't stop a forensic examination of a phone. It's just it's just too complicated. So, um, I mean, it had really – and, you know, how in the heck are you supposed to – I mean, serving the warrants on, on electronic service providers and uh, records companies and stuff was just too confusing. So, anyway, this fix is very important. But, again, that bill from the special session was is to go in effect on March 1st. This bill has a – line in it that states that an emergency exists and this act is in force from its passage. And so what that means is that the moment the governor signs it, it becomes law. If the governor signs it tomorrow, it becomes law. If the governor signs it March 15th, it becomes law on March 15th. Um, hopefully the governor will just sign it on or about March 1st. We'll time it perfectly so that it just takes the place of the new statute and uh, we have a clean transition. But that remains to be seen. So I'll probably put out maybe another little quick uh, update episode uh, when I see that the governor has signed it or we know when the governor has signed it uh, or we get some kind of inkling about when the governor is going to sign it. Um, but right now, that's what we know. So I hope that that was interesting and helpful to you, that you learned something. Uh, it's certainly an important issue, and uh, and we're keeping our eye on it to, get, to provide you with more resources. So for today, that's all from me. I hope you like the podcast. If you do, tell your friends. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. But that for today, that's all from me. That's all from Biggie. Stay safe and don't get captured.